You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are going to look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. I realize there there is much more to say that we could say about the biblical marks of a church, but this will be uh, the last message in this series uh, for now. Lord willing, we will return to Romans next week, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And uh, I trust that though these messages may uh, have challenged some of uh, your thinking and, and thoughts about the church, um, what it means to be a part of the church that, that has been uh, encouraging and helpful to you. A church is a people uh, belonging to God. A church is a people who are committed to uh, one another in membership. A church is a people who are submitting to the authority of God's word. A church uh, is a people who are treasuring the gospel. And then finally this morning, a people who are devoted uh, to prayer. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to this knowledge of the truth. There's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Lord, please help us now as we look to your word. Give us ears to hear hearts that would receive what you would have to say to us today. And I pray that you would use me as your instrument, that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, Harry Reader's book, From Embers to Flame, he, he discusses strategies to uh, kind of revitalize uh, churches. And he uses the analogy of building a fire without a match or a lighter. And uh, some of you uh, have maybe watched those survivor shows and things like that on Discovery uh, we're, and know how crucial it is to be able to be able to start a fire when you're out in the, the wilderness. I think of the movie uh, Castaway and, and the scene that Tom Hanks so long trying to get that fire going and uh, the celebration when he was able to start it. But Reader asks a hypothetical question. He says, what if you had to start a fire in outer space? I'm sure that question keeps you up late at night. Uh, but just just uh, for illustration purposes. Um, the, the fact is that you could try all that you want to start a fire in outer space, but you're not going to be able to. Uh, and it may disappoint you, uh, some of you science fiction fans, but all those explosions that we see in the movies of Star Wars and things like that, are, 
are pretty much impossible because there's really no fire there because there's no oxygen in, in space. There's not enough oxygen to produce it. And so when it comes to seeing churches go from embers to a flame, Reader points out in his book, prayer is the spiritual element that corresponds to oxygen in a fire. I think that's a, a really good analogy. Without the oxygen of prayer... Uh, to produce the flames of revival, no amount of human effort can make it happen. We must pray. Prayer is the oxygen that makes it possible. I think that's, again, a wonderful illustration. When you look at the early church in the book of Acts, and you're just kind of tracing through that whole storyline of what Luke records to us, you'll notice in chapter 1 that the church was uh, conceived in, in prayer uh, that, it, that it was uh, birthed by a sermon in Acts chapter 2. Uh, you will see that uh, as you work through it, that it grew and it flourished in this uh, ministry of prayer and the Word. We see it over and over again. In chapter 2, they are devoting themselves to prayer, Acts 2, uh, 42 and, and following. Acts chapter 4, when they encountered persecution, their first go-to was to pray. Uh, Acts chapter 6, when they're faced with some growing pains uh, over the ministry to those uh, widows, and they uh, began, I think, the deacon ministry there, uh, it says so that the, the apostles could devote more time to, to prayer and, and, to wor and to the Word. When they sent missionaries out, we see them laying hands on people and praying. I mean, over and over again, it's this pattern throughout. Prayer was the, the lifeblood or if you will, our analogy, the oxygen of the, uh, of the New Testament church. Their commitment to it, it demonstrated that they were dependent on God alone for, uh, in, in everything. They did not trust their own abilities. We don't see any patterns of them setting out and uh, let's try to bring some business principles that are working really well into the life of the church. Uh, we don't see them focusing on let's be more creative, uh, let's be more relevant, let's do all this neat and cool stuff. No, they continually go to prayer and they're depending on the power of God to bring life uh, and vitality and bear fruit uh, to the church. J.C. Riles offers a similar analogy. He says prayer is to faith what breath is to life. How, can, how a man can live and not breathe is past my comprehension. And how a man can believe and not pray is past my comprehension too. The, the early believers simply didn't have any a concept of a Christian community existing apart from this, this corporate prayer, this, this prayer habit that, that they had um, uh, that we see so often. I think it, it could be said that the reason so many churches, and maybe in, in our own lives, so many Christians are, are uh, lifeless and, and uh, powerless at times, maybe even plateaued or dying, if you will, is in, in large part because we are not looking to God in prayer. There's no oxygen. There's no lifeblood. There's no breath, there's the, and, and there's no life. We, we feel bad sometimes because we know we ought to be praying more. We know that this is a big part of the answer, but yet we, we, we can't seem to, to break through to do that. And, and oftentimes, I think we, we don't realize that, that prayerlessness is a sin. 
according to God's word. Do, do we realize our desperate need for that? Prayerlessness is a, a sin because it reveals the self-sufficient heart attitude that is behind it. Uh, an attitude that says, in effect, I got this, God. I don't really need you. I, I, don't, I, I don't need you to live the Christian life. We don't need you uh, to function as a church. We've got this ourselves. We just do these certain things, and bam, everything's going to be fine. Uh, the, the reason why, I think a big part anyway, churches are lifeless and powerless is because of that self-sufficient attitude. Arthur Pink uh, wrote, wrote this a long time ago. He said, prayer is not so much an act as it is an attitude, an attitude of dependency, dependency upon God. Prayer is confession of creature weakness, yea, of helplessness. Therefore, prayer is the very opposite of dictating to God because prayer is an attitude of dependency. The one who really prays is submissive, submissive to the divine will. And submission to the divine will means that we are content for the Lord to supply our need according to the dictates of His own sovereign pleasure. Another reason prayerlessness is a, a sin is because it downplays the spiritual war that we are in. Uh, to the church at Ephesus, Paul wrote this, Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times, in all, uh, in the Spirit, with all, prayer. And supplication. To that end, he said, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You see the, the, the repeating of the phrase, the phrases there, at all times. All prayer, he says, all the saints. We're to pray constantly to that end. Why does he saying this, uh, praying, uh, speaking like this? It's because of the reality of the spiritual warfare that he just described in the verses before. John Piper writes of the importance of prayer in the spiritual war. He says this, this is a long quote, but he says, Prayer is the walkie-talkie on the battlefield of the world. It calls on God for courage. It calls in for troop deployment and target location. It calls in for protection and air cover. It calls in for fire pyre to blast away a way for the word. It calls in for the miracle of healing for the wounded soldiers. It calls in for supplies for the forces. It calls in for needed reinforcements. This is the place of prayer on the battlefield of the world. It is a wartime walkie-talkie for spiritual warfare. Listen, not a domestic intercom to increase the comfort of the saints. And one of the reasons, he continues, it malfunctions in the hands of so many Christian soldiers is that they've gone AWOL. God has given us prayer because Jesus has given us a mission. God's pleasure and the prayers of His people is proportionate to His passion for world evangel evangelization. We are on, his, on this earth to press back the forces of darkness. We're given access to headquarters by prayer in order to advance this cause. When we try to turn it into a civilian intercom to increase our material comforts, it malfunctions and our faith begins to fail. That quote begs a, a, a question. Do we see prayer as a domestic intercom wired to God for the purposes of our own comfort? Or do we see prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie? Because we are convinced that the Lord of this church has called us to be soldiers on the battlefield of this world. 
There's a great difference in those two. One, and it certainly implies desperation and neediness, and we need to do this. This is the very oxygen for our lives, our very strength and power to live. The truth is, this is a matter of, 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 of not just a life and death, but an eternal life and death that we're talking about here. We're in a war, not against flesh and blood, he said, but against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And our mission is to make disciples, is to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who don't know him. And the only way that we can ever be successful in this mission is because of God and his power. So if the church today is to know the life and the power of God, the vitality of, of, of spiritual life, it must make prayer a priority individually in our own personal lives, but also corporately in, in the church. This is the conviction, I think, that's present here in 1 Timothy. In chapter 1, Paul provides a foundation, a gospel foundation, similar to the one that we talked about last week in, in I believe, 2 Timothy in 2 Timothy. But here he commands Timothy and the church at Ephesus to, to guard the gospel, to uh, celebrate the gospel, to fight for the gospel, chapter 1. And now, based on this gospel foundation, he gives very practical instruction in chapter 2. And the words that he uses there, first of all, signal that this is pretty important, Timothy. This is like, this is like we're at the top of the list here. First of all, this is to be of, of priority. How is it that we guard the gospel and celebrate the gospel and spread the gospel and fight for the gospel. What is the first thing, Timothy, I want to remind you of? He tells us, verse 1, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, all four of those words involve prayer, don't they? It's all about prayer, supplications, asking God. Uh, requesting from God. Prayers, kind of a broad term, meaning to, to communicate, to commune with the Lord. Intercessions, requests that we make on behalf of fellow brothers and sisters generally, or, or people that we're concerned about. We're interceding for them. Thanksgivings, acknowledging God's blessings and, and all things that he's, He is working. Four words to emphasize to the church here, to Timothy, the pastor, that they must be empowered by prayer. This must be a priority. This must be something that you give attention to. There's a reason, Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. It has not changed, church. Amen? We've moved from that. But the Lord has been clear in His Word uh, all along. It must be a priority. This passage doesn't say everything that needs to be said about prayer. Of course, you know there's multiple things that we can say, multiple texts that we can look at, but it does say some important things. So let's give our attention to these this morning. First of all, notice the recipients of our prayers. The recipients of our prayers. First, we should pray, verse 1, he says, for all people. And that's pretty, pretty, pretty clear. All people, or you might say, you could say it like this, all kinds of people. Uh, we should pray for one another. We should uh, pray for our family, of course. We should uh, pray for our friends. Uh, we should pray for our co-workers. We should pray for our neighbors. Uh, we should pray for Jesus said, our enemies, uh, we, we, those with whom we have conflict. Basically, I read this and, and think that there must be no kind of person that we should not pray for. Obviously, we can't pray every day and, and all day in, in, in that sense, but we are to be praying for all different kinds of people. 
Specifically, he goes on to say, verse 2, we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Uh, it's interesting, Paul singles out that category of people, which probably would have been on Timothy's mind in the early church uh, setting that he was in, especially when uh, you're, you were thinking about this was during the, the reign of Nero uh, in, in, in the Roman emperor who was violently persecuting Christians, causing all kinds of havoc on the church. Um, at this time in the world, there would have been few, if any, Christian rulers in the world, but yet Paul was telling them, I want you to pray um, for those those pagan leaders, like Nero, uh, and, and others that, that, uh, that were bringing a great deal of suffering in their lives. Pray for the emperor uh, that you serve under. Pray for the leader that you don't agree with. Pray for this one who's causing all kinds of, of, of trouble. Pray for the ruler that you don't approve of. And, and the reason that he gives goes on in verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in, in every way. He doesn't tell us what exactly we're to pray for in, in these, but he does tell us kind of the result that we're aiming for. That is one of the goals that we're praying for is peace. Not, not necessarily comfort, but peace. We're praying for our leaders in such a way as to promote a peace, he says, that is a peace that would enable, presumably enable the, the church to flourish, the gospel to flourish. We're praying for conditions. We're praying for our leaders that they would lead us in ways that there would be conditions that would allow these things to happen. It's not a prayer in opposition to the state, really, but it's a prayer for protection and flourishing under the state. The Christians and churches can live out their faith without hindrance from the government. That's a huge prayer for our world today, right? I mean, there are places, you, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are living in places like Saudi Arabia or North Korea, uh, Korea and uh, other places where we need to pray for their, their governments there. But let's be honest, we also need to pray for places like Canada and even here, uh, praying for conditions that would allow us to keep flourishing in our worship and our service and our gospel sharing in the world. And the picture Paul paints leads us to, I think, the conviction here that the progress of the gospel in the world is tied to the prayer of God's people in the church. There is a connection that he's making, isn't it? What sal while salvation ultimately belongs to God, we, we know that, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but, but, but his prayers, God has chosen the prayers of his people to, to, to accomplish this mission. We want them to know Christ. We're on a disciple-making mission. This is wartime, and Paul is urging us to pray, to pray for everyone, to pray for those in authority over us, to pray and yearn for the advancements of, of the gospel to all kinds of people in all different places all across the world. Yes, we're to give ourselves to this work of spreading the gospel, but part of this work that we're to give ourselves to is the work of prayer. Kent Hughes writes this, he says, when we observe how the church of Christ has prayed and lived down through the centuries, there's little doubt that the slow progress of the gospel is due to prayerlessness more than anything else. Let's not let that be the case among the efforts here and, and in the world. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of, of prayer. Let's commit ourselves to, to this work. There's theological 
uh, convictions that ground this kind of praying that Paul gives next in verses 3 through 6. We might say the reason for our prayers, the foundation or the conviction of our prayers. J.I. Piker describes these verses as uh, containing the key not merely to the New Testament but to the whole Bible because they crystallize into a phrase the sum and substance of its, of its message. But no, notice it. Notice how the, this, this uh, motivation that's behind our praying. First of all, we pray, Paul says, because God desires the salvation of all people. Verse 3, this is good. That is the prayer. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is good, Paul says. What's good? The prayers of his people. This is, this is good and right. It's pleasing to God, whom he says wants all people to be saved. There's some things going on behind the scenes here. We know from the time in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, and the letter to Ephesus, there was kind of a spiritual elitism that existed in the church. There was some, there, there was some a little bit of that us for and no more kind of an attitude that Paul was dealing with there. It was a kind of attitude that later on in history that so maddened uh, the young uh, aspiring missionary William uh, Carey when his church told him, uh, young man, if God is going to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or ours. And it so maddened him that he, he left his church here in, in, at his home and, and he went to India where he became kind of the father of, of modern missions as we call him today. Church, we exist to, to glorify God. Amen? I mean, it's underneath everything that we do. And, and the way that, one of the ways that we bring glory to God is having the heart of God. And the heart of God, we see all throughout Scripture, is for the salvation of His people. He desires their salvation, and therefore we must do it. It must be part of our desires. It must be undergirding our, our prayers. Now, it's a, it's a fact, I, I believe, that the Scriptures teach the doctrine of election. And our Baptist faith and message affirms uh, that it does that. That is, God chooses and elects uh, to do everything that He does uh, in whatever way uh, He feels best to do it, because He is God, right? And that includes choosing of, of people. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the Gospel of John. We see it in Ephesians 1. We see it in Romans 8 and other places. And, and Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. But it's interesting, the Scripture also teaches the complementary truth. Here in our text, verse 4, that God, it says, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that God wills all men to be saved, because if God willed all people to be saved, they'd be saved. He doesn't. God has a will of decree and a will of desire. And what we have here is an expression of God's divine desire. This is a desire that brought about the incarnation and the cross, right? For God so loved the world, His desire, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we see this tension in places in the Bible, uh, all over the Bible. We especially see it in places like the, the, the cross. You remember Jesus prayed on the cross, one of the powerful prayers. Uh, he said, Father, forgive them. Uh, for they, they know not what they do. 
But then only to the thief of the cross did Jesus, uh, one of the thieves on the cross, he said, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's not our responsibility or capability to figure out the puzzle of that because that creates a puzzle for us, doesn't it? And we see that tension. But it's this, here, it's this divine desire of God, Paul says. Looking at what God desires that should drive our prayers because God desires the salvation of all people. We should, by all means, pray for the salvation of all people. It undergirds our praying. This desire drove the Apostle Paul to the very ends of the earth with the gospel. Secondly, another reason he gives, we should pray because God deserves the honor or the worship of all people. He talks about this, verse 5. He says, for, here's another reason, there is one God. Let's just stop there. That's a really important statement, isn't it? Uh, despite what uh, we are told and, 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 uh, from our pluralistic world and the worldview uh, that we are hammered with often, there is not, uh, there's not one God for one group of people and then another God for another group of people. There's one God, Period. One God who deserves the praise of all people. Isaiah 45, there is no other God besides me. He says, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none besides me. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no other. How does this mesh with our prayers? What's been said that worship is the fuel of, of world praying and missions. It's, it, it's, again, it's the oxygen. It's the lifeblood. It's the breath. It's the, it's the fuel. We believe our Father who hallowed be your name. His name is to be honored. His name is to be glorified. We want everyone on this earth worshiping God. Amen? So worship is the goal of our praying. The reason that we're praying here, Paul says, is we're praying that all kinds of people will worship God. All kinds of people will, will glorify Him. We'll, we look forward to the day when we get into heaven. There's not going to just be one kind of people. There's going to be all kinds of people there who are knowing and worshiping God from every tribe and language, we are told. And so it's that desire that fuels and motivates our praying, he says. Third motivation, we pray, he says, because Christ died for the rescue of all people or the ransom for all people. Verse 5, again, for there's one God and there is one mediator between God and, and men. Who is this mediator? It is the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So there's one mediator, he says, between God and man. There's one hope for salvation in this world and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, fully God, notice fully man here, gave himself as a ransom, as a payment for the rescue or the release of prisoners. That was you and I in our sin. We were enslaved to sin. We were children of wrath, but God has rescued us. And you understand that he, and part of that rescue is rescuing us from God, from his judgment. For our sins, he took the judgment on himself on the cross so that we wouldn't have to be judged. And his payment, his ransom, is uh, effectual for all who believe. It's not for all, but for all who believe, the Bible says. First, uh, a little bit later, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Paul says this. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This gospel call goes out to everyone on, on, on the earth. We, we want it to. We're called to take the gospel to all people. But salvation is only effective when those believe in Christ. So there's a wonderful confessional statement here. Verses 3 through 6. God's desire that all men be saved. God's honor that he alone is due. Uh, the work of, of God's Son. These are the kinds of things, Paul says, that grounds our prayers, that motivates our, our praying. In, in essence, that makes our prayers effective in the world because of these incredible truths about God, about his Son, Jesus Christ. This is wartime. Not flesh and blood, but spiritual for the souls of men and women and the honor and glory of God. You know, in the, in the past several years, we've learned uh, we, new military terminology and strategy. And I remember several years back, uh, the phrase we kept hearing some in the media about painting the target. Do you remember that phrase? Uh, painting the target. The target, and, and apparently it's when a special operations team uh, infiltrates an, an enemy country and they have the special uh, devices or guns or whatever. They point to a target, but instead of shooting, shooting the target, they shoot it with a laser beam that paints it or marks it so that uh, a, a plane can come over and know where to drop uh, the, the munitions. And in some way, this is, this is a great illustration of prayer. prayer. Maybe it's not a great illustration, but it's kind of an illustration of prayer. But as we bring our people, our requests toward the Lord, are we not painting the target? Are we not saying, God, work in their heart and life? God, work over here in their heart and life. And, and church, we need everybody involved in this. Amen? This is a church-wide effort. Uh, we, we need multiple initiatives to paint the target with prayer in our community, praying for our loss, praying for our friends, praying for hurting, praying for our times of worship together, praying for our fellowship. Imagine what would happen if we started painting the target with prayers in this way and devoting ourselves. We recognize this is part of our, our, our calling to be uh, in spiritual warfare, to, to, to paint the target with prayer so that God can do His work. As long as our prayers are focused on the advancement of God's kingdom and honor, we should ask God to do great things in our church and in our community. Are you? You praying those prayers? It leads us finally to the responsibility of our prayers. Verse seven provides kind of a wonderful, uh, kind of a wonderful bookend to this this passage, uh, speaking of, of of the prayer empowered gospel task. Verses 3 through 6, Paul says in verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul is talking here about his own special role as an apostle, but what, it's a great reminder, I think, to Pastor Timothy, who was not an apostle, and to the church, really every follower of Christ. What is the call here in this passage? It is to pray to God for all people. For all people. But then verse 7, where we come back to, it is to preach the gospel to all people too. 
It's, it's, a, it's an important bookend. We pray, and then we go. We pray, and then we proclaim. We preach the good news of Christ. John Stott puts it like this. God's desire and Christ's death concern all people. Therefore, the church's duty concerns all people too. Reaching out to them both in earnest prayer and in urgent witness. Earnest prayer and urgent witness. Those two go hand in hand. I was in my, uh, in my study this week. I came across this verse in Psalm 109, verse 4. And I, I just I hadn't noticed it before. But here's what the verse says. In return for my love, they accuse me, uh, David says, but I give myself to prayer. I give myself to prayer. In, in the Hebrew, that last phrase, I, I didn't notice this, or I couldn't have saw this in the English, but, but it literally means, it's, it's translated, I prayer, or I am prayer, he says. And, and, and obviously it means that he gives himself to prayer, but, but maybe even something a little bit different, because he realizes as he's praying that he, he becomes his prayer. Uh, uh, Ferguson notes it like this we do not merely say a prayer our life becomes a living prayer a living prayer so th this is why prayer is so important and life shaping in the church and, and why it must mark us as the people of God that we're a people of prayer because in prayer we are shaped to be more like Christ we are shaped by these prayers as we're praying that this is the desire of God. As we're praying that, it's, it becomes our desire. And it changes us. It transforms us in that way. And therefore, we must be people of prayer. Will you hear and heed this call? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. We always uh, close our service with a, a, a song, and I want to invite you during this time, if uh, the Lord is speaking to you, if you've never trusted Christ before as your Lord and Savior, maybe you've never thought about the fact that He's ransomed you, He's paid for you uh, to be forgiven of sin, I want to invite you to come forward this morning. I would love to pray with you. Uh, maybe you want to express your desire to join our church and become a part of, of the effort here uh, to spread the gospel. We want to welcome you to come forward. Or maybe you want to come forward. We sometimes forget this. Uh, to come forward to respond in prayer. To come forward and pray for someone that's on your heart this morning. Maybe even yourself. Maybe uh, someone in the church. Uh, maybe someone who is lost. And uh, I just encourage you and invite you during this time as we sing, uh, these steps are open for you to come. Let's bow together for prayer. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.